Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church in our Advent series. This is the fifth in our series, and the series is entitled Longing for Glory. It's something that we all have inside of us, a longing for glory, and today's sermon is entitled Glorious Hope Has Come. Glorious Hope Has Come. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And these words have really been made famous by Handel in his Handel's Messiah. So we're reading some of the scripture that inspired Handel to write the Messiah, which is probably the most famous Christian composition. Uh, Handel, in 1737, at 52 years of age, was a very discouraged man. He had suffered a stroke, and so he could no longer play the piano. He was right-handed, his right side was paralyzed, he could no longer conduct, and his vision was blurred, very discouraged, and he had lost all his money in the opera business. He wrote, that was his, that was his job, to write operas, he was a genius at it, but for some reason there was a downturn in that, and so he really was bankrupt, almost blinded, paralyzed on one side, he was discouraged, he was hopeless. And then, at 52... He read a little booklet, a booklet that was written by Charles Jennis. And it was very simple. It had three parts. It was really just all scripture. The first part of the booklet was the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. We're going to read one of the scriptures that was in that booklet. The second part of the booklet was basically the gospel authors about the life and death and resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ. And the third part of the booklet was Christ coming in power and rule and reign, primarily from the book of Revelation. So he read that booklet in 1740. And the next year, he wrote Handel's Messiah. Why? Because in reading that booklet, God encouraged Handel to such a degree that his faith was renewed. He received hope, received hope by the very scripture that we're going to be reading this morning. So let's read the text, shall we? Are you there? Isaiah, verse chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people... Who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them was, has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you hear Handel's Messiah ringing in your ears? Think of the flash mobs that you'll see on YouTube in malls. They're singing this. Handel read this. This is what encouraged a man who was virtually blinded, paralyzed by a stroke, and bankrupt. For to us, verse 6 again, a child is born, and with him hope. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Dante's Inferno, The words on the gates of hell read as follows. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. This has become a powerful proverb to express the thought that if you come in, be prepared for the worst. It can be used to describe a chaotic but not so serious situation like your teenager's bedroom. Or it can be used to describe a very serious situation. The one being described here in Isaiah 9, the one that Handel was experiencing, perhaps the one in your life. When circumstances bring such darkness, such chaos, such disorientation, such discouragement, that one loses hope and places Dante's sign over the heart, over one's heart. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Like Handel... The recipients of this prophecy were in a hopeless situation. And perhaps you might be confronting one this morning. These people of whom Isaiah is speaking here lived in northern Galilee. I believe there is a picture of it, a map here on the screen. I turned to look at the screen in the middle, and now it's over here. You see Galilee there at the top. They lived in Zebulun and Naphtali. This was an area that in 722 B.C., around the time that Isaiah was prophesying, was invaded by the Assyrians, think of Syria today, the Assyrians, and was wiped out. The ten northern tribes were wiped out. So Isaiah is prophesying to these people who had been wiped out. And imagine if in our country right now we were wiped out by an invading army. Maybe two people in your family were killed. Maybe your son was taken and conscripted into their military force and fighting overseas. In your neighborhood, instead of your nice, beautiful neighbors, you had people living next to you. There were total foreigners speaking a totally foreign language and subjugating you and making you pay taxes and treating you harshly. That's the people to whom Isaiah is prophesying here. They had lost hope. In fact, look at verse 22 at the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 22, the verse just preceding our text. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. They were hopeless. And into their hopelessness, God sends Isaiah to speak hope. And hope comes in the form of a person, of a child, of a son, Jesus Christ. And that's really the main point of this text. For to us a child is born, and with him hope in our hearts. For to us a child is born, and with him hope in our hearts. Listen, if you're not a Christian, the Bible says you need to be born again. I pray that you're born again today. Your dead heart would come to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and unto us a child is born in your heart today. And if you are a believer, you may feel dead. You may feel disoriented distant. May God revive the joy of your salvation. A son has been born. He was given for you. He was slaughtered on the cross for you, rose from the dead for you. May that bring you hope no matter what your circumstances are. 
here's my prayer. Um, like Handel, like the people of Naphtali and Zebulun, some of you, all of us really, carry around a little bit of hopelessness. We kind of carry it in our pocket, you know. Every once in a while we empty it out. But there are some of you who rather than having small pockets of hopelessness, you are carrying around a backpack of hopelessness. Loaded down. You're saying, can I ever change? Can this situation ever change? This darkness, this gloominess, this despair, whatever. I pray that God would lift that backpack off of your back today. By the very hopeful words that God spoke through Isaiah to a people that were in a very difficult situation. Friends, God brings us hope this morning in Christ, the child born, the son given. It's no ordinary hope. It's biblical hope. What's the difference, Al? Biblical hope just doesn't think, well, maybe, possibly. Biblical hope is a certitude because this is God's word. It's yay, it's amen, it's going to happen. John Piper describes biblical hope this way. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It's it's what was expressed here in this text. When you read the Hebrew here, it's in the past tense. Wait a second. Isaiah's prophesying 700 BC about something that's going to happen when Christ comes. But it's in, it's in the past tense. It's called the prophetic past. You know why? Because it's so sure that Isaiah speaks of it as if it's already happened, though it will not happen for another 700 years. Do you need that kind of hope? You're so sure of it that you're speaking of it as it, it's already happened. That's the kind of hope that God brings to us. If you walked in here hopeless this morning, I pray you walk out with joy and hope because of Christ. He is our hope. He is our hope. A child is born. A son is given. and He brings hope. So point one, let's look at the promise of hope for the hopeless. Point one, the promise of hope for the hopeless. Look at verse one of chapter nine again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The her is, is speaking of the people of God, Israel. For her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. The contempt was they were invaded, wiped out by a foreign uh, army. But in the latter time, this is now prophesying of Christ's coming. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is the hope that God brings in Christ, in Christ. This is the hope that we have in Christ, though right now we feel like we're occupied by an invading army. Oftentimes that enemy is right inside of our heart. It could also be the culture around us. It could be situations. A lot of times it's right here, the enemy within. But Christ has come to set us free. Look at Hebrews 2.10 on the screen. Speaking of Jesus, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and sons and daughters to glory. Though they have contempt now, he's going to bring them to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Dear non-Christian, this is what I'm talking about with the gospel being that Jesus had to die for you. Jesus brings you to glory by suffering an inglorious death, naked, shamed on a cross. Isn't that great news? It is. It is. And, okay, Al, how do you know that Isaiah 9 is 
is speaking of Christ because Jesus referred to it when he spoke of himself. Because Matthew refers to it when he gives us a history, a real world history of Christ. Look at Matthew 4, 13 to 16. Speaking of Christ and leaving Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is in that area of Galilee that I showed you, the the upper part of of the map. So Jesus lived there. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And he, and leaving Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. I visited Capernaum just about a month and a half ago. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Ah, okay, this is now what Isaiah spoke 700 years earlier. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, what's so wonderful about that is when you're in a hopeless situation, there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of that hopeless situation. Just like there's nothing you can do to make the light of the sun dawn on you. Those people could do nothing. When you're in the dark night of your soul, God promises to bring the dawn of his son upon you if you're one of his people. And that sun will rise by God's hand. You cannot make it rise. I've tried. There are times in the dark night of my soul, usually hits about three in the morning. My eyes wake, boom. You know, old men do this, okay? If you hear younger men, There'll come a day when you can't sleep. I know that sounds weird, but that'll come. And your eyes will open and you'll look over at the digital clock. You go, no. And those are some of the darkest hours. And you're just hanging on. I mean, in the military terms, the best time to attack is about five in the morning, right before dawn. Because just physiologically, the way we're built, your body is at a low after it's been dark all night. Everything's at a low. But you know what happens every morning at 6.35 in the morning? The sun comes up. Isn't that amazing? Go home and tell someone that. I learned that at church. Sun comes up every morning. That's right. But you didn't make it come up. I didn't make it come up. And in the same way, Christ, the Son of God, dawns in our hearts. Sometimes it feels like it's taking forever. And it's a dark night of the soul. But he brings hope. Because he rose from the dead. He promises that. See, for us, of all people, even when we're in the contempt of distress and sin and whatever we're in, we know that we received God's favor when we deserved God's wrath because of what Jesus did, not what we did, even as the sun rises because of God's ordinances, not because we wanted to. And that's good news. That is the source of our hope. We did nothing to create this hope. God is the one who created it. We did nothing to create the joy that comes with it. God is the one who multiplies it, and he increases our joy. And for that reason, we rejoice in him, even when things are difficult around us. But what is the basis of this promise of hope? We've alluded to it. It's this son. It's this child. Let's look at him carefully. Point two, the basis of hope. For the hopeful. This is now verses 4 to 7. Note that verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with one word. Do you see the word they begin with? For. 
for the yoke of his burden, verse 4, for every boot of the tramping warrior, verse 5, for to us a child is born, verse 6. This word for explains the basis for the hope that is given to us in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 give us hope. Those who were in contempt and darkness now have hope. And verses 4, 5, 6, and really 7 are the reasons for that hope. Look at them. Verse 4, we're having liberation from the oppressor. Do you see that? The staff is lifted off his shoulder. The rod of his oppressors has been broken. Verse 5, we celebrate victory with the victor. That's what all that phraseology is. The boot of the tramping warrior, battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's just symbolizing that Christ wins the victory. This this enemy army will be defeated. And then verse 6, the incarnation of the king. God in the flesh, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son is born. So let's look at these briefly. Verse 4, liberation from the oppressor. What's the basis for my hope? Here's the basis for my hope. God and his divine love and his steadfast love, which we celebrated in communion just, just a few moments ago, liberates us from the penalty of sin. Death is no longer part Eternal death is no longer part of our future because Christ saved us and we're raised from the dead and we will live for him with him forever. If you're not a Christian, it is very much a part of your future. I beg you, repent and believe. We're saved from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. Sin does not dominate us uh, by act. Sin may influence us and greatly affect us because we give into it, but we don't have to. We're, we're delivered from the power of sin. From the power of sin. The picture that is given here to Israel is that of God delivering them from Egypt for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. It's it's this picture of delivering from Egypt. It's also a picture of a deliverance that occurred through a guy named Gideon, which we don't have time this morning to get into, but you can read the story of Gideon, who was the leader over Midian. So it rhymes, Gideon, Midian. Stop there. Secondly, celebration with the victor. What is the basis of my hope? Well, I've been, I've been liberated from oppression, and I celebrate with the victor. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Think of burning the garments and the boots uh, and the fuel of the fire as end zone celebrations by teams that just scored a touchdown, which they get flagged for. Right? When they do all these elaborate little celebrations, they, they, they spin the football and they act like it's a fireplace so they're warming their hand on the fire. Whatever they do, if you watch a, a football game, you'll see a celebration. Think of people celebrating different events, jumping up and down, laughing, dancing. That's what he's saying here. We get to be part of that celebration, not because we did anything to earn it. It would be as if the Dolphins scored a touchdown, which they scored a lot of them last night. And... Um, and we got, we, we, they said, okay, Pino, come down off the stand. So you run down off the stand in your flip flops and there's all the football players, you know, and they said, okay, celebrate with us. Yeah. We did nothing to earn that. <laughs> even better, they paid us as if we, we scored the touchdown. That's even a better one right there. Nice, huh? That's right. That's what it is. We get to celebrate the victory of Christ. Where is that victory? It's on the cross. Look at Colossians 2, 13 and 15. On the screen. And you, he's speaking to Christians, to us, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, speaking of Christ. So God made us alive together with him. We didn't make ourselves alive. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, in his naked shame on the cross, put to open shame the rulers and all the powers that held us captive in those invading armies. And we get to celebrate with them. By faith, if we repent and believe, he won the battle on the cross. We get the spoils of victory. Friends, the basis of our hope is victory, is the victory of Jesus Christ. And we get those spoils. And he invites us out onto the battlefield to celebrate with him. And we never fought a lick. We got to the battlefield after the victory was won. And he says, come on out and celebrate with me. And what's the final basis for our hope? It's the incarnation of the king. Look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The third and ultimate basis for our hope is that God has given us himself. He's born. God becomes flesh. This child is both God and man. And the God-man, Christ Jesus, the Lord, the incarnate word of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, yet born of the virgin as a man. His coming secures our hope. The government will be upon his shoulders. What does that mean? That means that power is given to Christ to rule and reign. The government is not on any man's shoulder or woman's shoulder. Ultimately, the the government is on God's shoulder. It's on Christ's shoulder. He has the power to govern. How does he govern? Well, first of all, as a wonderful counselor, Jesus governs wisely. This is where I pray hope for you. If you're wondering what to do, If you're wondering how you can solve this dilemma, this problem, Jesus has the government on his shoulders and has the wisdom to govern you. And he gives you that wisdom in his word. Whatever that might be for you right now. Next, how does he govern? He governs as the mighty God. He has the power to govern. He has the wisdom to govern, and he has the power to govern. Listen, it's one thing to have all the right answers, and we need that in any governor, in any leader, in anybody who's leading anybody, from you leading yourself to you leading your small little family to you leading a church to you leading a nation, whatever. You need wisdom. But if you have all the wisdom in the world and know what to do, but you don't have the power to execute it, right? So what? Jesus does. He has the wisdom to govern. He has the power to govern. He's mighty God. Listen, the imagery there is one of battle, my friends. He's the mighty God. There is a battle going. And you're either on the mighty God's side or you're on the rebel's side. Satan. Satan. Adam agreed with Satan and said, I'm going to go on your side. And all of us were there with Adam, and we would have done the very same thing apart from Christ. You are his enemy. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this equation because he's the mighty God. But then God comes in this 
this turn of events, this, this astounding, mysterious way and said, I'm going to reconcile you by dying on a cross in weakness. But make, make no mistake, I'm still a mighty God. And one day, everyone will have to face me. But you can face him as his friend. Man, that's good news. And that's all a gift. You don't earn that. I don't earn it. I don't earn it. And finally, how does he govern? How is the government on his shoulder, or second to the last, as the everlasting father? What does that mean? Listen, he has the wisdom to govern. He has the power to govern. And guess what? He's governing forever. Everlasting father. His kingdom will never, ever, ever, ever end. That is good news. Political kingdoms come. Political kingdoms go. Tyrants who reigned as dictators for over 50 years die. Nations that rule the world, Rome, pass away. You and I are but a little breeze, a puff of dust that won't be here anymore. My next-door neighbor, Elsa, beautiful woman in her 80s, she, she passed away about two weeks ago. I remember when we first moved into that house 18 years ago. Elsa was a vibrant, funny, you know, your classic Cuban lady, man. She was, she was great. She was large and in charge. <laughs> and then I just watched her age. Watched her age. You know, last time I saw her, just, Elsa, como estas? How are you? How can I serve you? There's a woman that was there caring for her 24 hours a day. Um, and she's gone. Even the greatest uh, among us, when they're gone, you kind of forget them after a while, don't you? Don't you? They were a big deal when they were here, but when they're gone, they're gone. God will never, ever pass away because he's eternal. He's the everlasting father. That, my friends, is a basis for hope. And finally, he's the prince of peace. Not only does he have the wisdom to govern, not only does he have the power to govern, not only does he govern forever and ever and ever, but he, he governs in peace. Oh, we need peace. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of war. The older you get, you just, you just don't even have the energy for the conflict anymore. He's like, yeah, whatever. That's why you have a lot of whatevers with older people. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but, but I don't believe that's God. I, that's some Eastern mysticism where I just die to all desires and I just get nirvana. Hmm. Baloney. That's not how God made you. God made you to conquer. God made you to rule underneath his benevolent hand. God made you to care and and to really work hard. He's the only one that can do it peacefully. The rest of us do it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Just try to do any project. You'll find that out. But Jesus rules as the prince of peace. Jesus alone brings peace. He alone fulfills the Father's will perfectly. He alone receives the Father's favor. And Jesus, Jesus then became God's enemy on the cross that we could become God's friend. Jesus was rejected on the cross so that we could be accepted. Jesus experienced torment so that we might experience peace. Only Jesus, only in Jesus can you live at peace with God. And friends, that is your greatest need. Yeah, it's great to have peace at home. It's great to have peace at work. I I want peace on earth, goodwill toward me. I want all that. But peace with God. Peace with God. Our hope is based on the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Here's the appeal. You know, it's told that when Handel composed the Messiah, 
when he wrote the Hallelujah Chorus. You know about the Hallelujah Chorus. It's said that in ancient times, or at least in previous centuries, when the Hallelujah Chorus chorus was sung or played, everyone stood, even kings. Because, see, Handel was looking at the Revelation part of that little book and the ruling and reigning Lord of Lords. Go read Revelation during Christmas. Christmas is a great time to read Revelation. But when he finished writing the Hallelujah Chorus, his assistant came in and found Handel, a broken, bankrupt, partially paralyzed, partially blinded old man of 52 years old. He looked at him and Handel said to him, I did think I saw heaven open and saw the very face of God. That's God's appeal to us this morning. I don't know what you're going through. Metaphorically speaking, you may be semi-paralyzed, blinded vision. You may be bankrupt. You may be done. You may be saying, I have no energy left out. But here is, I believe, God's word to you. Listen to the prophetic past. The glory is coming. The grace is coming if you're a believer. And there is a promise that is sure, as sure as this word, as sure as God's name, Jesus. And may that give you grace. May that give you glory. Not yours, but Christ. May you be like Handel. May you be like the people of Zebulun and Naphtali, formerly thrust in deep darkness and anguish of gloom, but now walking in the light. Those who were in darkness have seen the light, rejoicing before God, who has liberated you from sin and death. He's giving you the spoils of the victor, Jesus Christ, who is the child born, the king who rules as the wonderful counselor, as the mighty God, as the everlasting father, as the prince of peace. This is the hope. The Christ, the child born, the king, brings to us. What does that hope look like for you? I don't know. I, I can't answer that for you, but I do know this. It's a confident expectation that you will overcome that sin that you're battling with. It's a confident expectation that ultimately you will live in glory forever and ever, everlasting father, your son or daughter in Christ. It looks like a confident expectation that Christ's glory will rule and reign Listen, it could play out very simply for some of us. We just invite people to next Friday night to the 23rd or the 30th. Don't invite them to the 31st. I won't be here. I'll be watching college football, but do come on the 30th. I don't know. You think about it. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I know this truth. I pray speak to us. Let's pray. Worship team, you can stay right where you're at. I'm just going to give a benediction after this. Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name that the demons of hopelessness and fear and doubt and unbelief would be blown away, that we would be doing a celebration dance in the end zone of your kingdom as we rejoice with our King Jesus, who nailed them to the cross and won the victory on the cross over them. Lord, We look around our land and all we see are occupying armies and we look in our hearts and we see a lot of foreign speaking enemies and we can be tempted to be really hopeless. We feel contempt. Some of us feel shame. But Jesus, would you give us a glimpse of the glory that you won because you were shamed willingly on that cross? Lord, give folks right now an idea of of what you want to touch in their life. Just one thing. To apply this to one area revive hope for a lost loved one revive hope for victory over sin in a certain area revive hope 
for a dream that you've placed in their heart. A kingdom dream, not a selfish dream, a kingdom dream. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May the Lord give you his wonderful counsel. May the Lord give you his great might. May the Lord give you assurance that he's an everlasting father. And may the Lord give you peace, a peace that the world cannot take away from you. Amen.